Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Picture yourself alone in the middle of nowhere, and there's somebody following you. He went on his way, we so thought, and then we went on ours. But in reality, he really followed us up there. On Deadly Nightmares, the true crime podcast from ID, listen to real stories of ordinary people stalked by serial killers and attackers. Please, tell me we're not going to die. Listen to Deadly Nightmares on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast explores themes of murder and rape. Listener discretion is advised. Why are all these murders here? Why? Well, one reason is that we have a homicidal maniac, apparently, who's been running around, and we know he's killed 10 people. He was contemplating pulling the gun out and killing both of us. We're digging bullets out of a tree. From 1972 to 1973, Locals in Santa Cruz, California, were terrorized by not one, but two serial killers. Their names were Edmund Kemper and Herbert Mullen. They operated independently and over an 11-month period claimed the lives of 21 individuals. Young children, teenagers, female hitchhikers, even a priest was slain. No one was safe. I'm Dr. Michelle Ward, and this is Mind of a Monster, the co-ed killer and Herbert Mullen. Episode four, Catching a Serial Killer. It's February 10th, 1973. We're five days after college students Rosalind Thorpe and Alice Liu were kidnapped and murdered, and two days before their decapitated bodies are discovered at Eden Canyon. I want to take you to Henry Kell Redwood State Park in Santa Cruz. On this night, out in a wooded area seldom used by locals, there's a makeshift tent, held together with plastic sheets and tree branches. Here, four teenage boys, David Allen Oliker, 18, Robert Michael Spector, 18, Brian Scott Card, 19, and Mark John Derbelbus, 15, are camping illegally. It's off the beaten path, so they have a 22 caliber rifle with them, perhaps for safety. As night draws in, they get an unexpected visitor, Herbert Mullen. Mullen knows the park well. Back in 1968, he was apprehended by park rangers for fishing illegally and possessing marijuana. Tonight, he pretends to be a park ranger himself and chastises the teenagers for camping illegally. He takes their rifle claims to imagine they offer themselves up as sacrifices, and then he shoots them all dead. Terry Medina was a detective at the sheriff's office at the time. 
and was on the scene when the bodies were discovered a week later. Can you tell me a little bit about the scene and how you ended up there? So Henry Cowell is this beautiful, highly developed uh, recreational park, but there are large parts of this park, hundreds of acres, that are not part of the official trails that is just off into the wilderness. And somebody hiking, believe it or not, I think they were had been hiking from the university campus all the way from down by Santa Cruz up through Felton, stumbles onto this makeshift Visqueen tent structure at a pretty self-developed camping area and looks into the tent structure and there's four dead bodies. And it takes a while for these people to go find a phone, right? No cell phones. You got to go find a pay phone, which is a few miles away in this little village of Felton. So we have to marshal the state parks to help us get to where this is, which wasn't easy, because we have to get a lot of equipment and everything up into this tent site. So by the time we all got up there, it was late in the afternoon, and shards of sunlight are fading through the trees, and they, they quickly determined that doing a whole lot of work at this point is, is, is gonna be counterproductive and we could ruin some evidence. We didn't wanna do that. So they set up lighting and then they said, okay, <laughs> we need two guys to stay here all night long and uh, we'll come back in the morning. I don't know how I became one of those two guys, but myself and Detective Brad Arbslin, I guess we drew short straw. I don't know what happened, but we had to be there all night long. And it just became too weird, too eerie. So the sun fades away to total darkness. The moon comes up and now there's moon shards through these trees. And they had left us with a generator and lighting. And I kept looking in the tent and I would tell Brad, I said, Brad, did they actually put somebody in that tent and make sure every one of these people are dead? Because I think one of them has changed their position. And he said, no, that's impossible, they're dead. I said, I don't know. And then it's like a movie where these two people are scaring one another. So we're now we're outside the tent. And he said, well, did they clear the area? I mean, how much of this forest can they clear from people? What if the person that killed all these young men are still out there and looking at us? So then we would turn the generator off to turn the lights off so we could be in the dark and couldn't be seen. And then we decided we'd be together so that we could repel somebody. And then we thought, well, we better be apart because if one of us gets caught or shot, then the other one still has an opportunity. We just kept talking ourselves into some scary movie. This is nuts. And then we started laughing at one another, of course, like, don't ever tell anybody we did this, you know. And to think you had just not too long earlier had that horrific experience of seeing Kathy Francis and her boys, and now you have to spend the night with four dead teenagers? Yeah, yeah. And so then, of course, the next morning, everybody comes back, right? So now we have a full crime scene group of people, and we are photographing and drawing and latent searches and collecting everything 
blood. We were digging bullets out of a tree. It looked like there had been a target set up at a tree, but we don't find a gun. There's no pistol, there's no revolver, there's no rifle, but we're digging 22 bullets out of a tree. So all day, the next day, is just working on that crime scene, working around these bodies. We don't remove the bodies till probably the next day at, in the evening. But yeah, that turns out, that crime scene turns out to be pivotal as we move forward. We'll get to why this is pivotal soon. First, I wanna take you across town to the municipal wharf of Santa Cruz three days after the four teenagers are killed. Emerson Murray is the author of Murder Capital of the World and an expert on the crimes of Kemper and Mullen. He picks up the story. So Herbert Mullen was collecting firewood in Felton, and he heard his parents' voices in his head, and they said, in addition to getting us some firewood, you're going to need to go kill somebody for us. So he went down to Santa Cruz, and there was a man named Fred Paris and uh, he was out filling some potholes uh, on his property right on the street and Herbert Mullen pulled his car, the back window of his car rolled down and he had a 22 rifle which he had taken from four boys that he had murdered and he rested his arms on the firewood and shot Fred Paris once. It was just a perfect shot. It went right into his heart and killed Fred Paris. Well, it was in broad daylight and the neighbors, they heard the gunshot and saw the car and saw Mullen pulling away. This brings us back to law enforcement and Detective Terry Medina. A neighbor sees a station wagon drive away. A 1958 Chevrolet station wagon nomad, white over gray over white. So that gets put out to the city of Santa Cruz Police Department. People are rushing to Fred Perez. Fire and ambulance are on their way to that location. They put out this BOL, be on lookout, for this car that is driving away. Don't know if this car has anything to do with anything, but it was seen. And a motorcycle officer spots this car on Highway 9 near Highway 1 going up towards Felton in the direction of where Lawrence White was found. Lawrence White was the homeless man battered to death by Mullen in October 1972. At this point in the investigation, 19 people have been murdered since May 1972. Along with Lawrence White, there are seven female hitchhikers, four of whom are still counted as missing by the cops, a priest, a mother and two children, a married couple, four teenage boys, and now a man doing his gardening. The only lead is armed and speeding down the highway in his Chevrolet, having just killed a man. Officers prepare for a shootout with an extremely dangerous individual. But when they finally do catch up to the vehicle, the driver, a slight man of five foot nine, steps out and does not resist arrest. The driver of that car is Herbert William Mullen. The back end of the Chevrolet station wagon is full of like kindling wood all the way up to the top of the back seat and the glass top of the tailgate is up and lying on top of the kindling of the wood is a 22 rifle. Wow. So Mullen gets taken into custody there and the car is impounded. And the next morning, Paul Doherty was 
the criminalist that uh, the district attorney, Peter Chang, wanted to use from the beginning. So he came down to process the car. And so we found this rifle. And at the bottom of all the wood, we found a casing from the round that was shot from the car. So the casing had fallen through the wood to the bottom. So Doherty takes the rifle, the casing, back to the lab, and we give him the slugs from the tree at the campground of the boys that were killed, as well as the casings. And that became the forensics match to put all that together. So now we know who killed Fred Perez. We know that the rifle was stolen from the campsite of the boys, and the bullets in the boys were from that rifle. So now this puzzle now is going from a kaleidoscope to more of a picture, at least in those cases. And I could tell you it was elation. We were like thinking, man, this is it. This is the key that unlocks it all. Detectives are also able to link Mullen to Kathy Francis, her two sons, and Jim and Joan Genera. How? They had a witness who claimed to have seen a 1958 Chevrolet driving away from the cabin at Mystery Spot on the night of those murders. It all fits together evidentially, but the targets are so random. What on earth is his motive? Back to Emerson Murray. How did he justify those killings? He firmly believed um, that he was murdering in order to save California from natural disaster. He believed that the Aztecs had it right and that human sacrifice being a, a small disaster would prevent a larger disaster, a large natural disaster. And, and really he was afraid that there would be a massive earthquake and that California would fall into the ocean and that he himself was preventing that from happening. Within weeks of his arrest, Herbert Mullen would be visited by renowned criminal psychiatrist Donald T. Lundy. To have such a profession at the time was truly remarkable. I want to understand how Lundy became such a legend in the field, so I speak with his son, Monty Lundy. Your dad had a really interesting occupation. I mean, back in the 70s, my dad was a small business owner and our neighbors were firefighters. Your dad was playing with serial killers during the day. What kind of man was he? He was really a brilliant guy. He was highly educated, very, very excited about being a part of Stanford. He had gone to uh, undergraduate school there. He got his master's there in psychology, and he got his medical degree there, and then quickly moved into being an associate professor in the medical school. So he was just an exceptional human being in terms of his moral compass. What you are about to hear comes from Dr. Donald T. Lundy's exclusive interview with Herbert Mullen. Mullen is trying to explain to Lundy why he committed the murders. We human beings, for the history of the, of the world, have uh, protected our continents from cataclysmic earthquakes by murder. A minor natural disaster avoids a major natural disaster. If murder is a, is a natural disaster, then why should you be locked in for it? It's natural. Well, because you're and if it has a good effect, huh? Your laws. My take on this is that we are listening to a paranoid schizophrenic. Had he only said this at the time of being captured, I would be more suspicious. 
but he appears to have these set of rules. There are command voices telling him to kill, and he truly believes that they are real, and that by murdering individuals, he will stave off a natural disaster. I'm not convinced this was the case with all the murders. The Generas and Kathy Francis feel different to me because there was an element of planning, but it certainly seems to be for the other seemingly random attacks. What really intrigues me is the easy way Donald T. Lundy manages to get Mullen to open up. I return to his son, Monty. What do you think it was about him and his expertise, or even just his techniques, that made your dad, Donald T. Lundy, more successful than other people studying or working with the same population? Well, I'm speculating a little bit, but, you know, he's got a little bit of a Midwestern sensibility about him. He grew up in Milwaukee, and, you know, he was just very matter-of-fact about things. You know, he wouldn't hide things. It was pretty transparent what he was trying to do, and if you know, an inmate uh, or a criminal asked a question, he would answer the question. And if they had a problem and said, can you help me with this? He would actually try and help them. So I wouldn't say that he was overly compassionate, but there was a level of compassion, I think, that came across in terms of him being genuinely interested in their situation, in their mental state, in their history, to where they would start to open up and, and talk to him. It sounds like they trusted him. Yeah, I mean, back in the day, just about everybody smoked, including my dad, so they'd be in interviews, you know, trading cigarettes or whatever. He was five foot eight, so he wasn't like an intimidating personality either. So I think the combination of all of that just made him very human and, and approachable. It's just so interesting. I would love to have met him. I want to talk about what your dad thought of Herbert Mullen. I'm not a doctor, so I don't want to get too far into the weeds of this, and I wasn't really a participant, but I've read enough and I've talked with him enough and I've sat with him enough. Um, I know a little bit about how he thought about these people. I mean, he felt that Mullen was a paranoid schizophrenic. He was hearing voices, individuals saying it was okay to kill them with the idea of preventing earthquakes in California. I'm probably paraphrasing a bit, but I think he would say that Mullen was a classic case of paranoid schizophrenia. He was hearing voices, he was acting on them irrational ideas of the association between killing people and stopping earthquakes in California. His notion was, you know, kill a few, save many, which was just not a sane, rational way of thinking. Those of us who are working in this field now are standing on the shoulders of people like your dad, who are the first to recognize that, look, I can sit in the room with this monster, but I am literally saving lives down the road because I'm gathering information that people like me will use in perpetuity to understand. And of course, we can't prevent everything, but if we can re recognize what environmental or biological triggers there are, then we can get ahead of it. And like you said, kind of push them away from criminal behavior, protect them if we need to. Coming up, I delve deeper into Mullen's mental state and explore how elation turns to despair as law enforcement realize that Herbert Mullen isn't the only serial killer operating in Santa Cruz. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. 
Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. If you're looking for a little extra peace of mind, you might want to check out Simply Safe. Simply Safe was kind enough to send me a home protection system to try out, and I couldn't believe how easy it was to set up. Not only that, I'm kind of a gear nerd, and I was really impressed by how clear the camera was. I also love the smart lock keyless entry because there are a lot of things to remember each day, and my keys aren't always on that list, okay? Not only that, Simply Safe offers a 60-day money-back guarantee, and U.S. News & World Report awarded them the best home security systems of 2024. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind, and I want you to have that too. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/mindofamonster. There's no safe like Simply Safe. It's February 1973, and Herbert Mullen is in custody following the murders of four teenage boys and a drive-by shooting of Fred Perez. During his police interviews, Mullen reveals himself to be a deeply disturbed individual. Emerson Murray knows the crimes of 1972 and 1973 better than anyone. I want to discuss with him Mullen's audio tapes. Emerson, I want you to listen to an extract with me and tell me what you think. I don't know about you, but in this extract, I can really feel the tension in the room. I get the distinct impression that Mullen doesn't think that Lundy is understanding him. Well, I'm telling you that you, as a, as a male homo sapien, should uh, uh, get yourself a list of the earthquakes that have happened. You should get yourself a list of the death rate per day. You should get yourself a list of uh, uh, the uh, natural disasters like uh, uh, typhoons and things, you know, with, you know, chronology. Here it's so interesting that Mullen is referring to people as homo sapiens. 
I wonder if that might be a way of distancing himself from the cruelty he has inflicted on his victims. January, January through December, from uh, uh, from the beginning of history. That's what you should do. Have you ever done it? And then we could talk about this. Well, we don't talk about it. If yes, I have. Yes, I have began. I I wrote the United Nations, and uh, I went to a library, and I started studying the demo, demo, uh, demographic, uh, you know, demographic data. Which library did you go to? I think this goes to Mullen's unhealthy mental state at that time. He's really trying to logic out things that are just irrational. He's trying to to sort of make them make sense and make two plus two equal five and just really trying to sort through these things. I don't think he just killed and moved on. I think he really thought about it and he was not doing it for anything sexual, any other reason. He talked about not being able to have thoughts. I couldn't create or retain new thoughts and I don't know what that means but it's something that he firmly believed and still believes is that at that time he was not able to also remember thoughts that was the other thing he couldn't remember any thought I think that that recording just goes a long way to sort of showing that he was madly and desperately trying to rationalize these irrational thoughts that he was having I think what we're hearing is the chaos that is the mind of a paranoid schizophrenic and the connections they make, the dots they connect, the signs they see that have no logical relationship to anything. And one thing I hear from paranoid schizophrenics over and over again, those who hear command voices, is that they don't hear the voices in their head, they actually hear them. It's auditory, like they're hearing you and me. And I've had so many who see visual cues, like every time I see an R written in the street or a street sign, I know that I'm supposed to do X, Y, and Z. They have a lot of magical thinking. If I do this one thing, then this will happen. If I do this other thing, then these other things will happen. Michelle, I have a question for you too, is when you hear the way that he talks, like he talks like, yeah, okay. Uh. Does that have any significance? Is that kind of speech pattern uh, mean anything to you when you hear it? So the word schizophrenia comes from the Greek words schizen, meaning split, and phren, meaning mind. Of course, a lot of the thinking about it and treatment for the disorder has been disputed now, but I think it's worth remembering those two words. They speak to a disordering of thoughts, an inability to stick to a train of thought, and we often see this in speech patterns. Informally, we call it word salad. And the result is often their sentences and speech patterns aren't quite the same as you or I might create. It also means, and I think this is the case with Mullen, that they can speak for long periods of time without ever really getting to a point, and they provide lots of unnecessary detail. I find it fascinating. Let's get back to 1973 and the investigation. So the police have Mullen in custody, and he's freely talking about the murders he's committed. There's evidence he even left a fingerprint at the scene of Father Henry Tomei's murder. Did law enforcement think the horror was over? I go back to then-detective Terry Medina. So at this point, do you think all of these murders are going to stop because you found the guy? I remember thinking exactly that. 
you know, you get mixed up in murder cases, or you get such highs and you get such lows, and this was a real high. And you know, the euphoria kind of makes you want to think, geez, we've got it all. Now we just have to go put all the work we've done in all these crime scenes together. So I thought, yeah, we're gonna solve all of these. And the beauty of our system is you have the police working their butt off on all this stuff. And you have prosecutors who are kind of focused on what we're doing and, and what the hard evidence is. And didn't take very long for us all to realize that a lot of these crime scenes just don't fit Herbert William Mullen. That the evidence isn't enough to clear all these cases. There's just too different. And so we realizing, God, this one doesn't fit. This can't be Mullen. And the, the co-ed, the, the hitchhiker, the evidence just wasn't there to fit that. So we knew we were on the track of solving some of them, but not all of them. Briefly describe to me what that felt like. Is it a come down really quickly from the high of finding Mullen? I was so high, I was so happy. But, you know, we're, we're having these big task force meetings of all the detectives daily, if not twice a day. And it didn't take us very long with kind of the direction of the district attorney at the time, Peter Changs, realizing that we got another, somebody else out there because this doesn't all fit. So that was a downer, right? Now you got the media too. What are you gonna tell them? Well, don't hitchhike. The fear of a second serial killer is further compounded when law enforcement makes another gruesome discovery. Two decapitated heads. They belong to the students Rosalind Thorpe and Alice Liu, who had gone missing just a few weeks earlier at the beginning of February. Detectives have reason to be nervous. Forensic examination of the remains of all the dismembered female hitchhikers discovered so far, Rosalind Thorpe, Alice Liu, Marianne Pesch and Cynthia Shaw reveal a pattern. They have all been cut using the same technique with extremely sharp instruments. There's nothing whatsoever to link them to Mullen. There must be someone else. And that someone, Edmund Kemper, is about to appear on law enforcement's radar for the first time. Mickey Alufi was with the sheriff's office at the time and he tells the story. Okay. In California, if you are a convicted felon, you are not allowed to own a handgun. Kemper bought a handgun. It was a Smith & Wesson 45 revolver, I think it was 45, with a six and a half inch barrel. It was like the old Western days, you know, with a 45 revolver and all that stuff. So because I was the new kid on the block, this dealer's record of sale was sent to our office. So they pulled a three by five card that has his name on it that says juvenile record sealed. That means it can't be held against him. We were in a kind of a dilemma. Can he actually own a handgun? We weren't sure. So I decided that we would go out and confiscate the weapon, submit the information to a judge to get a judicial decision as to whether or not he could own this gun. So myself and Don Smythe uh, went out to his house. What were your impressions of him? Well, I give you an indication here. When we got there, we went around his neighborhood because addressing in that neighborhood was kind of confusing and we couldn't really find his specific place. So we were just getting ready to leave and this Ford pulls up and parks in front of this, I guess I call it a fourplex. So I told Don, I said, wait a minute, let me go talk to this guy, see if he knows Kemper. 
So I go over there, and by then the guy is lying across the seat, like he's doing some work on the wiring or something. So I said, excuse me, but can I talk to you? And he says, sure. So he gets out of the car, and he gets out of the car, and he gets out of the car. Six feet, eight and a half inches, 285 pounds. And I told Don, I said, I think we found the right guy. So I explained to him why we were there. He was very understanding, very, you know, non-threatening. And he said, I understand. He says, I, I, the gun is in the house. I says, well, can we go get it? He said, sure. So we go to this, it's a lower right-hand unit of this complex, and we go through the front door. And as we go through the front door, he said, you know, oh, wait a minute, I just remembered it's in the trunk of my car. I should have thought something suspicious right then, but I didn't. So we go to the trunk of his car, and he's got the key in his hand, and he goes to put the key in the lock. And as he did that, Don and I instinctively separated, went to each side of the car. Officer safety type stuff. Smart. As soon as he unlocked the trunk, I put my hand on the trunk and I said, okay, I'll take it from here. I opened the trunk and there was a bundle wrapped up in a blanket. So I unrolled it and there was the handgun in a Western holster. So we took it. Interestingly enough, and I think back, you know, from a very distant future from this, that there was no lining on the inside of the trunk. Oh. You know, most, most cars have got a lining. They've got a lining on the inside of the trunk. Well, the reason it wasn't there is because he had his victims in there all the time and he had to wash out the inside of that car. I mean, hindsight. Yeah. We can always look back and be like, oh, was that something? Did you think you were in danger at that point? At, at that point, I didn't feel like I was in danger. I felt like I was in control. He was being very cooperative, very amicable, very, you know, whatever I wanted, he said yes. He did tell me later that he was contemplating pulling the gun out and killing both of us. And he said, obviously, that didn't happen. And it probably didn't happen because Don and I split up. Mickey, you're telling me that you are almost potentially a victim of a serial killer. Like, that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And your good training is probably what saved your life. That's exactly right. Edmund Kemper is still a free man, and he hasn't finished killing. The finale to his murder spree is now right around the corner. In the next episode, detectives continue to hunt for the second killer and are appalled when the true scale of his brutality is uncovered. Mind of a Monster, the co-ed killer and Herbert Mullen is brought to you by Arrow Media for ID. Your host is Dr. Michelle Ward. You can follow our show wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love it if you could take a second to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 